Welcome back to the Curdverse. I'm Lisa Kaywood, corporate functionary by day, home cheesemaker by night. Last time I told a story of cheeses historically made by small farmholders and hardscrabble itinerant shepherds. But today, let's start with the tale of an emperor. This emperor, like most of his peers, spent much of his time on the road. He liked to tour his domains and check in with, or check on, his subjects, especially the local authorities who held land from him, governed it on, on his behalf, and owed him taxes for the privilege. And maybe he simply felt, like Genghis Khan is alleged to have observed, that one of the joys of travel is seeing new towns and meeting new people. So according to legend, this particular emperor, whose name was Karl, was heading back to his capital from one of his road trips when he was forced to stop for the evening in some really poor religious establishment. So poor, they didn't even have fish to offer the emperor on a no-meat day. So Karl was served cheese. And the cheese was covered in what the Latin text calls erugo, which can be translated as mildew, plant rust, or mold. Karl took out his knife and went to cut off the mold, at which the religious personnel of the abbey all cringed and got that tense look that French people even today get as you're about to do something egregiously wrong to the food. Ultimately, the poor local bishop, or abbot, or whatever he was, screwed up his courage and told the emperor, Wait, sir, that's the best part! So Karl, being a gracious guest, took a bite of this mold and, we're told, chewed it like butter, which was an immense luxury at the time. And he declared it to be so good that he wanted the establishment to send him two wagon loads every year after that. That's where the story usually ends when you encounter it in cheese tales, because it's often told, entirely uncritically, as the point at which a cheese star was born, for not one, but two different cheeses, Brie and Roquefort. The Roquefortians argue their case based on details found further in the original text, which was written by a priest of St. Gallen in the Swiss Alps a few decades after Karl's death. They point out that the paste of the cheese was described as white, and the mold was evidently some other color. A basic problem of geography makes that improbable, though. Roquefort is made in the southwest of France, some 11 to 1,200 kilometers or 700 miles from Karl's capital of what is now Aachen, Germany. In the late 7 and early 800s, the remaining Roman roads across the Frankish Empire weren't always in great shape, and transporting a moist cheese like Roquefort that far in an unrefrigerated wagon would surely be disastrous. The Brie partisans like to point out that the mold was on the surface of the cheese, like the marshmallow-textured mold of modern Brie's. Unfortunately, it's also true that the region of Brie, northeast of Paris, was relatively prosperous even in Charlemagne's time. And in fact, the two towns most renowned for their Brie's in the modern era, Meaux and Melun, each have a major river running through them, the Seine and the Marne, which makes it highly unlikely they wouldn't have had any fish. Brie also doesn't transport terribly well in the absence of refrigeration, since it too has a high moisture content. To the degree that this story happened at all, Charlemagne most likely stopped at some isolated monastery in the Alps, perhaps near St. Gallen, on his way back from Italy. So you may be wondering why I'm telling you this story at all. The first answer is that if you go looking up anything about Brie, you'll almost certainly come across that tale. But like most origin stories, cheese origin stories are usually almost entirely made up. But 
They often contain useful tidbits that do tell us a lot about cheese, especially at the time they were written. So Americans today often think of cheese as fancy food and meat as a necessity of life. But for most of human history, it's been the other way around. If you have a dairy animal, it's giving milk for six to ten months of the year, and that can easily be turned into a multivitamin packet of concentrated fat and protein, either eaten right away or stored away for the lean months. And many cheeses are or have always been vegetarian, so you don't have to kill any of your precious few animals at all. By comparison, prior to the advent of refrigeration, factory farming, and manipulated off-season breeding cycles, there were only a few times a year that it made sense to kill an animal for meat, and thus fresh meat was rare for all but the very wealthiest of people. For a religious establishment not to have even fish to offer an emperor, only cheese, meant that they were very poor and isolated indeed. And the fact that Charlemagne graciously ate it without complaint, even praising it and asking for more, although it looked unappetizingly moldy, was meant to show his immense magnanimity. The story also tells us that cheeses in Karl's homeland in the Lower Rhine were not big on molds since he was suspicious of them, and this is still true of many cheeses in the Rhine region today. Molds and yeasts can be a source of great flavor, as the Abbot in the Tale points out, but as another portion of the same medieval text tells us, they're very unpredictable. You have to have the exact right conditions when you make the cheese and when you age it in order to get something approaching consistent results. And later in the story, our poor bishop or abbot frets about exactly that, that is, whether he can deliver the same type of cheese that the emperor ate each time. The reason for that variability is that some yeasts and molds and fungi are really sensitive to acid. They won't grow in or on high acid cheeses. Others are salt sensitive, and others are perfectly happy in high acid and or high salt environments. The two that bloom into fuzzy white coats on the cheeses we'll be talking about today are both fungi. One is Geotrichum candidum, and the other is Penicillium candidum. Penicillium is that thick white rug that can have a kind of marshmallowy texture that you get on your standard issue Bries and Camemberts. Geo looks more like a sprinkling of white dust, and it shows up pretty much anywhere with the right kind of conditions. Like the white stuff coating your dry Genoa salami? That's also Geotrichum. It'll grow on harder cheeses that have been sitting around in your fridge for a while, too. Sometimes people think they have to throw out a cheese just because it has a sprinkling of white spots on it, but it's just the same stuff as you've paid special for when you buy a Blooming Rhine cheese. So eat up. Okay, there are numerous strains of each of these funguses, and not all of our fuzzy white cheese friends contain both. There are also a wide array of semi-anonymous yeasts that provide a sort of scaffold on the surface of the cheese and help the fungi to grow in. Now, these fungi have special properties. They're moderately acid-tolerant, so they can take root and start to fruit in cheeses that have been made with milk that's been sitting around for a while, unrefrigerated. But when they consume the sugars and proteins in the curd, their particular digestive patterns produce wastes that are basic. That is to say, they reduce the acidity of the cheese. And this is really important to the final texture of the cheese. It's what makes a lot of these cheeses gooey. They're also pretty salt-tolerant, more so than other fungi. So on a well-salted rind, they can outcompete less desirable types of growth. They tolerate cool temperatures pretty well, especially penicillium. So they're typically aged in cooler temperatures than many other cheeses. And of course, like most fungi, they like moisture and a lot of fresh, damp air. That fondness for coolness and dampness is key. 
what we might call the heartland of Blumey Rhine cheeses, is north central France, roughly between the Atlantic coast and Paris. The whole region is pretty much a flat plain, so the moisture coming off of the Atlantic is able to extend fairly far inland. But they're especially common along the great rivers of the region, the Seine, the Marne, and the Loire, which help funnel the wind-borne fog inland. There are certainly other places where Blumies can be found. Northern Italy, especially near the foothills of the Alps, has a bunch. Germany has a few, and England is starting to develop more of its own varieties as well. But the greatest diversity of Blumies are found in France, especially along the Atlantic coast. And the oldest writings that clearly describe that type of cheese are from that region as well. In episode 6, I talked a bit about how the size of a cheese can tell you quite a bit about traditional land and labor patterns. Most of these bloomy cheeses are, or at least once were, farmhouse cheeses. That is, they're small things that you can make at home if you only have a few goats or a cow, not much in the way of specialized equipment, and a million other things you also need to be doing during the day when you're running a farm and a household. A lot of them, especially the goat cheeses, are lactic set cheeses. Basically, you take the milk still warm from your animals, add some whey from the previous batch of cheese, and let it sit around and acidify for about 18 hours until it forms a very soft curd, similar to yogurt. And then you scoop it into molds, let it drain for another half day, salt it, and then stick it in your root cellar for a few weeks. Because of the dampness of the climate and the relatively high acid nature of these types of cheeses, you get blooms of these white fungi, but not other types of mold. Some examples of these types of cheese are chabichou, from the region around Poitiers on the Atlantic, the unrelated Cabecou, which you can find variations of all across the south and southwest of France, a version of which is called Coupole from Vermont Creamery, and the little hockey puck-shaped Crottin. There are several of these lactic set goat cheeses that are made in a log shape, which you can cut round slices off of. Sainte Amour de Touraine is a classic example made with a straw through the middle to make it easy to turn while it's aging. Boucheron is another widespread, somewhat generic type of bloomy goat log. In Spain and Portugal, you'll find something very similar called caña, made from either goat or sheep milk, depending on where you are. Several of these cheeses are actually sprinkled with a salt-ash mixture, rather than just plain salt. The ash is basic, so it neutralizes the surface of the cheese, making it a bit easier for the yeast and fungi to grow in. A lot of people see a blue-gray line near the surface of the cheese and think it's a blue mold cheese, but it's just finely ground ash. Depending on where you are, it could be made from the trimmings of grapevines or whatever other vegetable matter happened to be locally handy. Here in the U.S., we typically call it activated charcoal, and it's sold in health food stores. Saint-Maur is ashed, and so is Valencé, which is typically made in a sort of pyramid shape. Also, Celsius-Cher and the American Humboldt Fog from Cypress Grove. In Europe, most of the AOC versions of these cheeses are made from raw milk and aged just 10 to 12 days, which is why we don't see a lot of them here in North America. But there are pasteurized versions of some, like Rotin de Chavignol and Saint-Amour, that are mass-produced and sometimes exported. And this was the first group of cheeses after Chevre that artisan cheesemakers in the U.S. began making in the 70s and early 80s. So there are quite a number of domestic renditions, too. They range in flavor from very mild, especially when they're young, to more intensely goaty as they age and dry out a bit. Some can be fairly creamy, while others can be sort of chalky or cakey in texture, especially the taller ones. Um, Costco carries some of these, especially the American versions like Humboldt Fog, and you can also find them in higher-end grocery stores and specialty food stores. These lactic set cheeses are usually goat milk, mostly because that's what small farmholders along the windswept Atlantic coast could traditionally afford. But not always. 
In Italy, robiola is often a mixed milk cheese, blending goat and cow milk together. There's also a newish Italian cheese called Latour, which is cow, goat, and sheep. And one of the two major types of brie, brie de melon, is also lactic set. That's right, there are two kinds of brie. Brie de melon, the lactic set one, is usually on the smaller side, around 9 inches, and it often has reddish-brown streaks showing through the white on the rind. It's a little saltier and stronger than the other type, brie de meaux. Brie de meaux is the type that we're most familiar with in North America, sort of. The kind we're most familiar with is made with rennet and has that thick, even fuzzy white coat. But the traditional brie de meaux is also a fairly high acid cheese, one where the milk has left a fairly long time to ferment before the rennet ever goes in. And that matters because it means that the calcium structures in the curd are already a bit fragile when the cheese goes into the cave. And you can think of the rest of the breakdown as the cheese ages, a bit like a game of Jenga. The molds on the surface send their runners through the curd, feeding on the nutrients in the curd as they go. And at some point, the remaining structures binding the solids and remaining liquid in the, together in the curd start to lose their integrity, and they collapse. And that's when the cheese goes from gooey to runny, and sometimes it starts to smell of ammonia. Once things start to go, they can go pretty fast. So obviously this isn't a great thing for a grocer to have happen. It means they have only a very limited time in which to sell their breeze between when they're ripe and when they're unappealingly overripe. So most mass-produced breeze and camemberts are made using a technique called stabilized paste to extend their shelf life. Stabilized paste cheeses don't acidify for very long at all, which means they're also a lot faster and cheaper to make. Because the curd isn't very acidic, the calcium structures in the cheese are pretty strong at the outset of aging, which creates a firmer curd that takes longer to break down. They're also made at higher temperatures, so they retain a little less moisture, which would otherwise accelerate aging, and they're made using a slow-acting thermophilic or high-heat culture that, continu that continues to work slowly in the curd for weeks. So the resulting cheese is very mild and less funky than a traditional brie. But it's very inoffensive, and it has a nice, unctuous mouthfeel, so it shows up on almost every cheese board in existence. Speaking of unctuousness, a lot of people think brie is a high-fat cheese, and there are certainly double and triple cream bloomy rind cheeses like Brie au Savarin, Delice de Bourgogne, and Saint-André. Those do have extra cream added to the milk before it's turned into cheese. But they're really the minority of this type of bloomy rind cow cheese. Your typical brie or camembert or coulommier is simply made with regular whole milk and is probably lower in fat than many goat cheeses you might select. Okay, so what's the difference between a brie and a camembert, you might be wondering? The answer is not much. They're made using more or less the same techniques. A traditional brie de meaux is a large flat wheel about 13 inches across, whereas a camembert is typically 4 to 5 inches across and a little bit thicker. Camemberts from Normandy are known for having mushroomy flavors, whereas bries are more kind of butter and hay. Coulommiers, which is also made in the brie region, has a thinner rind and a thicker body, and it's usually sold a bit younger. So because it hasn't had as much time to break down slowly from the surface inwards, it sometimes has this gooey cream line just inside the rind and kind of a fudgier interior, rather than the even sticky goo that you're likely to be used to in a stabilized brie. But it's also pretty mild. So great, now you've got this big long list of bloomy rind cheeses to go check out. And in case you haven't been madly scribbling them down as I've been talking, there's a link to a very long list of possibilities in the show notes. 
But you'll also notice that when you go to the store that you'll probably have to choose between three or four kinds of brie, for example. Or you look at a bunch of those bloomy goat cheeses and you're not sure how to decide what you want. What to do? Okay, let's start with the gooey brie type cheeses. First, if they're wrapped in clear plastic, take a look at them. The white rind should be even. If it's got gray-brown patches, especially at the edges, that often, although not always, means it's getting old. Not the end of the world, but you want to eat it sooner rather than later. If you see any bright yellow or pink spots, put it down. If it's cut in a wedge and you can see the interior or the paste, check for an even texture. Here again, this isn't an absolute requirement. There are some mold-ripened cheeses that are deliberately too textured with a gooey cream line near the rind and a firmer kind of cakey center. In those cases, the cream line will continue to get creamier and runnier long before the center softens. So just be sure that that's what you want and are expecting if you're not seeing an even texture. If it looks gray near the rind, that's an old cheese. It might have some bitter flavors and not be especially pleasant to eat. The next thing to check out is how hard it is. You want one that has a bit of give when you poke or squeeze it gently. If it just feels firm, it's underripe. And there are certain brands that make their paste so very stable that it never softens at all. Finally, lower your mask for a minute and smell it. If you don't smell anything, probably won't have a lot of flavor either. If it smells sweet and buttery, great. If it smells of mushrooms and vegetable matter, that can also be good. If it smells musty or worse of ammonia, it's old and it's just gonna keep getting more unpleasant. Pass on that one. And then the next answer is just to try different brands and see which ones you like best. Some bloomies that have just geo and no penicillium will have these very thin rinds with rumpled or even brainy looking surfaces. Cotin de Chavignol is a great example of this. These are a lot more common in the lactic set bloomies. And I mention this because sometimes people get weirded out by the look and think that there's something wrong with the cheese. But let me assure you, it's just the opposite. That's just what certain strains of geo do to the rind. That look is absolutely part of a purposeful selection on the part of the cheesemaker. And an evenly rumpled rind is a sign of a nice, healthy rind and a well-tended cheese. You can think of it like a miniature Zen rock garden whose ridges and valleys you can contemplate as your senses slowly absorb the other aspects of the cheese. When it comes to the lactic set cheese, especially goat ones, there can be a lot of variety to choose from, though you're more likely to find these in a store with a serious cheese counter than a mainstream supermarket. If you're not a huge fan of Chev because you don't like the goatiness, these aged goat cheeses might help change your mind about goat cheeses because the compounds that make Chev goaty break down with age. You might also look for a mixed milk cheese, which can have more sweet and buttery flavors that offset the goat tang. The smallest ones are typically aged 10 to 14 days, while the larger ones can be more like four to six weeks. The ones that have ash on the rind tend to be a little cakier in the middle because the ash slows down aging. But in general, they won't have that give that the brie-type cheeses do, so poking at them isn't generally a useful exercise. Instead, you'll want to go off how healthy and even the rind looks. No beige or gray tinges, and then smell it if possible. You should have just a nice, fresh, clean milk kind of smell. When you go to serve them, take them out of the fridge and let them sit at room temperature for at least half an hour. Just as with red wine, this allows the flavor compounds to wake up and become more active, and your cheese will have more and a wider range of flavors. If you have a big wedge of something and you're only going to have a small portion, consider just slicing off however much you think you'll eat and only have that part out. It'll keep the rest of the cheese from aging too quickly. Finally, a word on cutting. Because these cheeses are mostly ripened from the outside in, 
the centermost portion of the cheese is the least ripe, so you want to have an even amount of rind and center in each bite. So if you have a wedge of brie, for example, cut off a small piece off the side of the wedge, not chunks off the point working back towards the edge. If you have a small hockey puck goat cheese, cut yourself little miniature wedges, like a quarter to half an inch thick. And then pour yourself a glass of bubbly, like a Blanc de Blanc or a Prosecco, nothing too, too dry. And cut some thin slices of green apple or some strawberries to go with your double cream. No flabby California Chardonnay, okay? Sauvignon Blanc goes great with the lactic cheeses, along with some cherries or raspberries, or a nice, juicy Danjou pear. Since we're on the subject of molds, next time we'll take a look at blue cheeses. This is another very old type of cheese, which goes back at least to Charlemagne's time. And even if he didn't have any scent to his home palace, perhaps he learned his lesson about tasty molds well enough to have enjoyed a little slice here and there when he was out on his travels. So join me again next time, as we once again enter the Curdverse. being a gracious guest. Unfortunately, it's also true that the region of Brie, northeast of Paris, was relatively prosperous even in Charlemagne's time.